Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Imagine a piece of furniture, part cupboard, part chest of drawers, decorated with a pattern of hearts, pinwheels, and intricate floral imagery, emblazoned on the front in large, bold letters, the name Hannah Barnard. This chest belonged to somebody, its ownership screaming out from the colorful images around it, assuring a sort of immortality of the person who once owned it and whose name is ever visible on its front. This boldly constructed, colorfully decorated cupboard with the name Hannah Barnard emblazoned across the front was made in 1715 in Hadley, Massachusetts. The cupboard and other pieces of furniture like it were familiar to early American furniture aficionados and experts, but in 1992, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich wrote, Hannah Barnard's Cupboard, Female Property and Identity in 18th Century New England, and brought the chest to a wider audience. Ulrich formed new ways of exploring the interconnectedness of material objects and cultural history by tracing the cupboard's physical history, but also the social context in which it was made and lived. She showed how, in a world that she describes as, quote, where Indians, witches, and illness lurked around every corner, a woman who, under the laws of coverture, essentially belonged to her father and then her husband's house, uh, proudly put her name on this chest, which eventually traveled down through her family for generations. In this series, we are shilling Sarah's new book, Bodies in Blue, Disability in the Civil War North, which explores the effects that the Civil War had on broader understandings of disability and manhood in America during the 19th century. Now, because we love and support Sarah, we want you to go out and buy her book right now. And we are doing this series on manhood. So each of our episodes explores masculinity in some way. So... How does a brightly decorated chest from colonial America tie into understandings about manhood and masculinity? 
find out in this episode of Dig. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Avril. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to give a big thank you to all our Patreon supporters, particularly our Augur and Excavator level patrons. A very special thanks to Danielle, Lauren, Christopher, Colin, Maggie, and Peggy. Your generosity will go down in history. <laughs> Listener, if you are not yet a patron, you can be. Just go to patreon.com backslash dig podcast to learn more. So what role did marking play in the movable arts made for or by colonial American women? Names are meaningful to individuals, to families, as markers of who we are, where we're from, even what we do. The surname Schumacher means somewhere in the past, those folks' ancestors made shoes. A name like O'Connor means you're from the family or clan of Connor. All of this was true for colonial era women as much as it is for us today. But as anyone who has had to or chosen to change their name knows, it can also be an important signifier of a major life change or upheaval. Name changes outside of marriage, as Elizabeth Emmons argues, are and were often an act of radical and cultural domination. For example, she notes, Quote, under the Nazi name decrees of the 1930s, Jews were required to add Sarah for females or Israel for males to their names. Immigrants to this country have been renamed due to the carelessness of clerks. Slaves in the U.S. were often named and renamed by the whites who legally owned them. But a name is also just a name. Words, right? A rose by any other name and all that jazz. So I'll be honest, I was having a hard time coming up with a topic for this series. In actuality, I just was not feeling it. You see, each episode we produce is written and researched by one person, and then we record with two of us. Um, Sarah, Ave, and Marissa, they were all bouncing around these really cool topic ideas, and I just had nothing. Now, bear with me because it may seem like I'm rambling, but I promise I will come around to my point. So while we've been brainstorming ideas for this series, I've been dealing with a lot of issues in my personal life. My father had stage four cancer and throughout the month was in and out of the hospital. When he came home and began hospice care, I flew to Texas to be with him and help my mom. Needless to say, my mind was not on the podcast. Throughout those weeks, we went through some really tough times, but it also gave me a lot of time to sit and think and kind of step away from my day-to-day -day life. And I began to contemplate something that I've heard numerous times throughout my life and was now coming to fruition. My father's line, my father's name was dying out. His siblings either did not have children or they died without offspring. My mother and father had daughters, so my sister and I were the last children of our line with his name. And so I began to think about what that meant. I didn't feel like his line was dying out. I see my father and my son and daughter every day. But what is in a name? My children don't have my father's name or my birth name. My mother does not have her birth name. Is that line dead? What about my paternal grandfather's line? Is that line dead too? 
And so I began to think about what it means in this 21st century era of third wave feminism that still 80 to 90% of married women in North America do not keep their birth name. Of course, I'd thought about it before, but it wasn't until my father's death that I really felt it. And then I remembered Ulrich's chapter about Hannah Barnard's cupboard, about a piece of 18th century folk art that immortalized a woman's birth name for centuries after she passed. And so patient listeners, I thought we'd explore Hannah Barnard's cupboard, what it meant that she emblazoned her name on her furniture, and what does that have to do with common naming conventions in 21st century America? Don't you just love how we come up with these episode ideas? Everything has a history. Word. So, (laughs) Hannah Barnard's cupboard. When Laurel Thatcher Ulrich began researching this chest, what immediately stuck out to her was this giant name across the front of it. Now, listeners, I suggest you head to our blog, digpodcast.org, to see pictures of this amazing piece. And also, just a quick Google search will take you to images of it. The chest is currently housed at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Their website has some really nice, detailed close-ups of the chests, if you can't make it there yourself. Ulrich began asking what this name meant. She wrote, quote, Were the words on the cupboard idiosyncratic or representative of some larger pattern in early American culture? Combined with vines and flowers, were they symbols of fertility, assertions of self, markers of one woman's command of her household goods, or emblems of every woman's subordination to domestic duty? Or were they merely design conventions or expressions of style? At the most basic level, I wanted to know what the cupboard could tell me about property. In a world where most forms of wealth were controlled by male heads of household, were certain objects, in fact, owned by women, end quote. So the colorful hearts, petal flowers, vines, and half circles on Hannah's cupboard are characteristic of a number of Hadley chests made around Hadley, Massachusetts during the 17th and 18th centuries. The Hadley chests began to get some buzz in 1883 when a Hartford banker spoke about an antique chest he had found on a summer excursion and called it his Hadley chest. There are about 16 identified variants of the Hadley chest style made in Hadley and nearby Hampshire County towns from the 1680s to about 1730. Some of these chests have drawers, while others do not. Most are marked with initials or a name that genealogists have been able to link to many young women born in nearby towns. They found more than 120 marked chests. Only eight have complete names, and of those eight, all but one were for women, and the rest of those, were not, you know, 112, oh, math, uh, <laughs> and the rest have, the rest 112 have initials. Right, and they had either two or three initials on them. So, however, it's not just these Hadley chests that bore women's names. Many material objects from the period have women's names and initials on them, such as pewter cups and textiles, showing, as Ulrich argues, that, quote, colonial women, too, found ways to assert themselves. 
And also, just as a disclaimer, we are talking about a really small set of English women here, women who were English colonists adhering to the culture of their time. Contemporaneous Native American women had their own way of marking belongings and claiming family, as did African uh, women brought to the North American continent against their will. So other ethnic groups that traveled to North America, they also had their own naming conventions. So just kind of want to put that out there a little bit. Yeah, for sure. The ornately carved and painted Hadley chests were distinctive to this region. Furniture collectors and historians have explored many aspects of their design and use, but until Ulrich used gender as a lens of which to study them, um, that was the first time anyone had taken full notice of the fact that the initials so prominently displayed on these artifacts belonged not to their maker or possibly even their buyer, but to the women who used, acquired, and bequeathed them. Even Ulrich herself was surprised to find such a fascinating piece of woodwork, writing, quote, I thought of wood and things made of wood as belonging to the male domain. Hannah Barnard's cupboard took me by surprise. Hannah Barnard was born on June 8, 1684, the second daughter of Samuel and Mary in Hadley, Massachusetts. Just for a bit of context, she was born eight years before the Salem Witch Trials. In fact, like most New England towns, Hadley also had its share of accused witches, but thankfully, none were sent to the gallows. Queen Anne's War, the second in a series of French and Indian wars fought between England and France, brought death and fear to the region that Hannah was growing up in. An uprising known as the Raid on Deerfield, or more commonly known as the Deerfield Massacre, took place on February 29, 1704. The French and local Indian forces attacked the nearby English settlement of Deerfield, Massachusetts. They burned much of the town, they killed 47 villagers, and they took 112 settlers captive to Canada. One of those was a soldier named John Marsh, who Hannah married roughly 10 years later. Hannah was 30 or 31 when she married John Marsh. She was his second wife, as his first wife had died a few years before. 31 was a bit older than most women married at the time, but not unheard of. Sometime between 1710 and 1715, um, so between the ages of 26 and 31, Hannah's cupboard was made, complete with the decorations and her birth name scrolled on it. No one is sure who commissioned the piece. Did Hannah request that her name be on it? Was it a gift from her father, from her future husband? Did she commission it herself? Regardless, even after Hannah Barnard became Hannah Marsh, her Barnard cupboard had a place in her home, holding precious linens and textiles. Ulrich traced this through probate records. In Massachusetts, as in much of the English-speaking world, quote, cupboards and chests, like the textiles, ceramics, and silver they were designed to store, belong to that category of property known as movables, end quote. English law dictated that sons received buildings in land, while daughters received a combination of household goods, animals, and sometimes slaves or servants. Although both male and female descendants received possessions from their forebears, males and females were treated differently under the law. For example, when John Billings of Hatfield died unmarried, the court divided his worldly possessions among his siblings in, quote, in equal and in proportion, the said brothers to have all the lands equally divided to them and the said Sarah to have her share in the movable goods, end quote. 
Hannah died only a year after getting married while giving birth to a daughter named Abigail, who survived. John Marsh married a third time and had four more children. He died in 1725 while only in his 40s. His will gave his two-year-old son with his third wife all of his real estate. Marsh's will and inventory show that within the household goods known as movables, certain items were designated to female lineages, both figuratively or, in the case of Hannah's cupboard, literally. The inventory lists household goods with, within a general list and then under the subtitles third wife's goods, second wife's goods. Hannah's list included a flowered chest valued at 32 shillings, which presumably is the cupboard now housed at the Ford Museum. Hannah's daughter, Abigail Marsh, inherited her mother's cupboard. When she had a daughter with her husband, Waitstill Hastings, in 1742, they named her Hannah Barnard Hastings. And Ulrich points out that middle names during this period were extremely rare. So this was indeed an instance of honoring the baby's grandmother, whose chest probably held a prominent place still in their house. Hannah Barnard Hastings married Nathaniel Kellogg in 1769. She had a daughter who she named Hannah Barnard after her grandmother and herself. This third Hannah died in 1787, but in 1817, her brother honored both his sister and his mother by naming a daughter Hannah Barnard Hastings Kellogg. Presumably, the cupboard passed along with the name, carrying on one woman's identity for more than 100 years. I have two comments. First, obviously, these women are all witches because only witches would pass down a name so significant obviously and second wait still hastings what is he waiting till <laughs> wait still be a good wife be a goody be a goody good wife and wait still <laughs> oh, I love it. Uh, following a line of descent from mother to daughter to granddaughter in western genealogical patrilineal descent is extremely difficult Within Hannah Barnard's family, the names of all eight of Hannah's great-great-grandfathers survive, but only three of her great-great-grandmothers have complete names, and two are simply unknown. It is possible that without the cupboard and the tradition of naming girls Hannah in the family, Hannah Barnard Hastings Kellogg might not have known her great-grandmother's name at all. However, as evidenced by her long name, um, this became a practice for their family, right? Including a female name in a lineage as a means of, of sort of tacking on the women's names in this, this growing lineage as each generation grows. Right. But by the time you're at, like, great, great niece, yeah. she's got a pretty bonkers name. Yes. And I think they stopped around that yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah. So, but... Tracing families is also difficult, generally, because during colonial times, daughters typically received their portions of family wealth at marriage and not at the death of the father. Therefore, wills and inventories do not fully show what moved from one generation to another. Movables essentially traveled outside of visible law, as deeds and surveys can show land ownership. This is not so much the case for tablecloths and chests, right? That's, right. that's not included in, in the formal legal... Right. Or it's just labeled as 
miscellaneous sundries, essentially. Yeah. Or, yeah. Valued at X yes. pence and right. pounds or whatever. Yeah. Ulrich reminds us that, quote, inscriptions on ordinary utilitarian objects bespeak not comradeship, but ownership, end quote. Ownership could look much different for women than for men. Hannah's cupboard status as movable property, the usual inheritance of women, uh, yet emblazoned with her name, enabled future generations to mark a female line. Right. Mm-hmm. So kinship is reckoned in a number of different ways around the world, resulting in a variety of types of descent patterns and kin groups. Western genealogy is often referred to as patrilineal descent because children typically take the father's name. However, that's a bit of a misnomer as true patrilineal and matrilineal descent means that descent is only through a single line of ancestors, male or female. So both males and females are member of a unilineal family, but descent links are only recognized through relatives of one gender, male and patrilineal and female and matrilineal. So for example, in societies using matrilineal descent, the social relationship between children and their biological father is subsumed by their mother's brother, the man who would have the formal responsibilities that European cultures assign to a father, a biological father, would be instead would be a child's mother's brother, since he is the closest elder male kinsman in the matrilineal line. The biological father belongs to a different matrilineal line. In the Ashanti kingdom of central Ghana, a king traditionally passes his title and status on to his sister's son. A king's own biological son does not inherit the kingship because he is not a member of the ruling matrilineal family group. So in that situation, men are still ruling, but through matrilineal descent lines. So roughly 40% of the Earth's culture traced descent through both the mother's and the father's ancestors to some degree. These are called non-unilineal or cognatic descent patterns and have roughly four variations. European cultures use one of these variations called bilateral descent, which traces descent from all biological ancestors regardless of their gender. So all male and female children are members of both their father's and their mother's families, but the male's name is typically used by his wife and children. I know that was a lot, but I just no, want to kind of put I that in. I love it. Okay. It's, it's so good. <laughs> Bilateral descent groups tend to be more short-term than unilineal ones. Beyond the nuclear family, there usually only exists a kindred or group of relatives linked by a single individual through marriage. When an individual dies or is divorced, the kindred that was focused on him or her is altered significantly or may even cease existing. Essentially, a family or kindred has to work really hard to stick together so to speak. Uh, the Kennedy family is a good example. Members of this well-known politically active family has included a U.S. president and several senators and still consider themselves to be a large closely related kindred group despite the fact that Joe Kennedy, the family founder, died in 1969 and many of the Kennedy kindred do not have the Kennedy name. Now, Star-Lord, or you may know him as Andy from Parks and Rec, as, as one does, Chris Pratt, <laughs> is now considered a Kennedy because he married Catherine Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. 
Schwarzenegger's mother is Maria Shriver. Shriver's mother was Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was John F. Kennedy's sister. (laughs) So that's some genealogical gymnastics, but also shows, A, how easy it is to lose the matrilineal line if you are only following names, and B, how keeping a bilateral descent group close requires some extreme effort. Right. This is making me want to go and label everything of value in my house with my name splashed across it. You should it. do that. All women, go do it now. Do it now. <laughs> maybe, maybe somebody will remember me. Anyway, so her study of 18th century New England material culture, Ulrich reminds us of the often complex ways in which names, objects, and property came to be inherited in the 18th century Atlantic world. Women like Hannah Barnard and her descendants were able to establish matrilineal descent through bequeathing a cupboard bearing Hannah's maiden name. So what about today? What's in a name? 72% of adults polled in a 2011 study said they believe a woman should give up her maiden name when she gets married. And half of those who responded said they believe that it should be a legal requirement, not a choice. Figures from several recent studies suggest that today, between 80 and 90 percent of marrying women take the husband's name in some form. About 25 percent of those women bump their birth name or maiden name to the middle name and then take their husband's name as their last. And I actually just learned that that's more prevalent in the South, which I had no idea was the case. To Um, do the middle name? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know that. That's what my mom did. And so that's what I did. That's what my mom did. Oh, well, maybe that's bullshit. I don't know. She's very Northern. I don't know. I I read that in Elizabeth Emmons. Emmons. Anyway. Um, So how did the common naming practices practice in North America come to be? This history of women's marital surnames in the U.S. is a story of social custom influencing law, influencing social customs, or the circular or whatever way that society works. Legal scholar Elizabeth Emmons explored the strange journey of how it became a legal issue to take a husband's name and then how it changed into a social norm. She points out that in common law in the U.S. as in England, Both women and men were free to change their surnames through common usage, subject to certain exemptions for fraud. Generally, up until the 11th century, first names were generally the only names used for individuals. Surnames began becoming more popular in the 11th century in order to differentiate the many people with the same first names. You can only have so many Sarahs (laughs) and Elizabeths in the village before you get confused. Never. (laughs) This practice... Uh, became more common through the following three centuries until most Europeans had surnames by the 16th century. Surnames typically conveyed some kind of information about the bearer, like occupation or place of origin. In European feudal times, occasionally gentry surpassed gender. Often, when a couple joined together, they would take the more powerful surname. So, you know, just say if if a, a woman is... Um, connected to, you know, royal family royalty or, yeah. or anything like that, they would take her name. Why not? Right. Mm-hmm. But as property became more and more scarce, women became less and less likely to inherit land. Historian Stephanie Kuntz argues that once women could 
offer only movable goods as de facto dowry, quote, the paternal line became much more emphasized. So English common law established coverture, uh, meaning that a woman became legally covered by her husband at marriage. Please have a listen to Marissa's episode on coverture for a deep dive into that whole pile of worms. <laughs> uh, for married women who were treated under coverture as legally subsumed by their husband's identity, bearing his surname was typically the most informative moniker. Up until the middle of the 19th century, American women typically changed their names to their husbands as a matter of custom, not of law. Custom became law by a series of cases in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. These cases built precedent upon precedent until many states had plainly declared in case law or by statute that married women's ability to engage legally in certain activities, such as driving or voting, was dependent on her bearing her husband's name. For example, in 1879, when Boston women were granted the franchise in school elections, feminist Lucy Stone registered to vote, but officials notified her that she would not be allowed to vote unless she added Blackwell to her signature. She did not and was not allowed to vote in that election. Blackwell being her... Her husband. Yeah, yeah right. her husband's name. Right. The foundational case that set precedent for making it practically mandatory for a woman to change her name to her husband's came from an 1881 New York decision in Chapman v. Phoenix National Bank. This case actually dealt with wartime seizures of property during the Civil War. The court ruled against the confiscation because the notice of forfeiture was listed in the married woman's maiden name. And who on earth would know who she was? Exactly. That's not her anymore. What? Right? Other cases in Texas in 1890 and Massachusetts in 1926, among many others, further entrenched the legal mandate of taking the husband's name. State and federal rulings were based off of the Chapman Dicta. In 1934, the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of New York ruled that a woman could not be naturalized in her birth name, but must be naturalized in her married name. In a 1945 Illinois case, Rago v. Lipsky, the court ruled in favor of a state statute that a woman's voter registration in her married name is automatically canceled upon marriage and that she must re-register in her married name in order to vote. In an Alabama case, the court ruled that the state's unwritten regulation requiring married women to obtain driver's licenses in their husband's names and the state's common law rule that a woman's name automatically changes to her husband's at marriage that both had a rational basis, particularly because she can apply for a name change through probate court. So the harm to her is de minimis or not a burden therefore legal, blah, blah, blah. Hawaii was the only state to have a law that actually specifically stated that a woman had to change her name upon marriage, like just flat out. Most of the others were in some kind of civic engagement, driving, voting, hmm. this, that, and the other. The arguments for and against making it mandatory for women to take their husband's name, uh, making men's surnames pass from generation to generation and women's surnames disappear, were articulated to great length during the 1970s and 80s. We'll go over some of those in a second. I think you'll notice, however, that in the 40 years hence, many of the same arguments and issues are front and center 
in the decisions made about changing or keeping one's name today. As one commentator wrote in the heyday of the lawsuits that stopped the practice of forcing women to change their names to their husbands, quote, Sure, it smacks of discrimination to require that a woman assume her husband's surname upon marriage and that the children she bears also go by her husband's name, but it is tidy. In a culture that developed as a male-dominated society, it was natural that the family name follow the male line of descent. Why don't we leave well enough alone? Right. You actually hear that a lot still. Mm-hmm. So essentially, just shut up and don't think about it too much, right? But here's something to think about. Morrison Bonpaz, the former executive director of the Lucy Stone League, brought up this point when arguing against the tradition of a woman taking her husband's name. Quote, suppose we had a tradition that when blacks married whites, the white name was always the name used by the family. If you really think that there is equality and the choice for a woman to keep her name, ask him to change his name. It wasn't until the 1970s that these precedents started to be overturned. In the 1975 Tennessee case, Dunn v. Palermo, the Supreme Court of Tennessee struck down a state law requiring a married woman to register to vote under her husband's name. The court wrote, quote, Married women have labored under a form of societal compulsion and economic coercion, which has not been conducive to the assertion of some rights and privileges of citizenship. Under U.S. law today, women and same-sex couples choose what to do with their names at marriage. Uh, Now, states make keeping a woman's name, her maiden name, so to speak, the legal default. But this issue of choice is a complicated one. Overwhelmingly, it's a woman's choice. The burden of choice is rarely put on a man. Although there are some men who are taking their wives or husbands' last names, this number is still quite small. Same-sex male couples are faced with this choice a bit more, uh, but more often than not, both parties just keep their birth name. For women and same-sex couples, um, they are faced with a choice. Keep their birth name, hyphenate their name, blend their name. Women potentially have even more of a change. Men's prefixes to their names don't change through marriage. They are always Mr., whether they're single or married. On the other hand, women may go through Miss, Ms., and Mrs. However, choice in the realm of keeping or changing names is still skewed towards taking the husband's name. And this is because states make any other name change other than becoming Mrs. His Name more difficult by placing additional administrative burdens on quote-unquote unconventional marital name changes. Additionally, there are just a lot of choices to be made. Um, As we kind of alluded to earlier, a woman can decide to keep her birth name or she can hyphenate her name and share one part of her name with her family and past self and another part with her husband and her children, while her husband has the same name as his parents and his children and thus continuity across three generations. Children also bring more questions and decisions to be made. Whose name will they take? If they have a hyphenated name too, what happens if they marry another person with a hyphenated name? So you can see it's kind of a rabbit hole that you go down, right? Snowballs. Yeah. Even though keeping a name is the legal default, still today most men never change their names 
And since children typically take their father's name, even when their mother makes an unconventional naming choice for herself, women lack a naming option that creates continuity among her parents, her spouse, and her children. So even though it is now the default for when a woman marries, she keeps her maiden name. The majority of North American and Western European women, 80 to 90%, still change their name to their husbands. Law scholar Elizabeth Emmons addresses this disparity by highlighting how states help frame a woman's choices through administrative burdens and also what she calls desk clerk law. States not only determine which options are easier than others, i.e. blending two people's last names versus just taking the husband's name, states also determine how to ask the questions or frame the questions as to how one wants to go about changing or keeping their name. For example, in 1985, New York State passed a law that requires marriage license applications to inform the parties that either that they can either change their name, that neither must change their name, or that a wide range of naming options are available, such as hyphenation, blending, or choosing a new name entirely. Most states do not make this so apparent when filling out marriage licenses. Additionally, as Emmons found out by calling county clerk offices all over the country, it really depended on who answered the phone as to what kind of useful information a person inquiring about a name change would receive. When posing the question, could the husband change his surname to his wives, Emmons got answers ranging from, sure, no problem, to, oh, honey, you don't want to do that, to, I guess men don't really change their names to their wives' names. (laughs) So where does that leave our discussion? With at least 80% of heterosexual married couples in the United States still going with the husband's name alone, how do we contextualize this phenomenon? And if you ask 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different answers, ranging from it's just more convenient to taking a husband's name shows him that you really love him to it's what my mother did, so I did the same to everything in between. It's interesting, too, because studies show that in the late 1970s and 1980s, more women actually did choose these quote-unquote unconventional naming practices for themselves. And then in about the mid-1990s, the trend began moving the other way, well into the 2000s. Although there seems to be a slight uptick in unconventional naming choices, it has not reached the levels of the 1970s and 80s. So what does that mean? Are we more romantic than we once were? Are we yearning for some bygone era? Do women just not care anymore? As one woman commented in 2007, quote, I just didn't see taking my husband's name as a big issue. As the Marines would say, soldier, is this the hill that you want to die on? For me, the answer is no, end quote. Emmons would argue that it's easier to take the husband's name precisely because it's the quote-unquote norm, that the administrative state perpetuates it by making it easier to change to your husband's name as opposed to hyphenating or blending a name or even as keeping as the default. These issues of family and continuity and potential children affect all family formations. Yet some couples that never considered changing their names when entering marriage reconsider the issue when contemplating the possibility of having kids. 
2015 Vogue article asked same-sex couples how they handled the question of names and family legacy. One woman who adopted her wife's surname back in 2007 explained it this way, quote, The real impetus to change my name was knowing we were going to have children, and we wanted them to feel part of one family and not have different names. A professional journalist was against changing his name for professional reasons, but wanted his children to have an easier name growing up than he did. He said, quote, Having been saddled with an unpronounceable name, I wouldn't want to put my kids through that, he said. My husband's name is Barrett, so I think we would probably go with that. Yet this still doesn't address the gender imbalance of name changes. On a whole, women change their name at vastly higher rates than men, whether in heterosexual or same-sex marriages. Yet questioning the status quo brings up many of the same arguments today that were bandied about in the 70s and 80s. In fact, the dreaded comment section of a recent Market Watch article that I read about women keeping their last name show that this is still a pretty hot topic. I know, never read the comments. I took one for the team, (laughs) y'all. Why is it that the only people who comment on online articles are angry white men? (laughs) Anyway. For real. For reals. We love you, angry white men. Yeah, except for the angry part. Just be cool. Be cool, man. To bring it back around to Ulrich, uh, who we started this with, uh, right. and Hannah Barnard's like cover. Yeah, like I did. Brought that around? Mm, she's Ow. back. She's back. Um, and our original question posed um, that for a father to have only girls, it means his family somehow dies out. We think Ulrich sums it up best in her explanation of family. Quote, Families are social constructions made and remade over time. Family identities, like personal identities, are built from selective fragments of the past, names, stories, and material objects, end quote. Marked objects, like Hannah Barnard's cupboard, quote, asserted an expansive, almost fluid notion of family that undercuts simple notions of patrilineal or matrilineal descent. In a legal system that required the subordination of women, one might imagine a female identity that was inherently fragile and derivative, shaped through attachment to others rather than assertion of self. Yet ironically, the force of patriarchy might have encouraged certain women to develop a more complex, and in some ways, autonomous sense of self than their brothers or sons. Never able to step into a ready-made identity, they learn to mediate between a family of origin and one or more families of marriage. End quote. End quote. So, and just in talking about kind of ideas about women today changing their name to the to their husbands, I found this article. I think it was on Salon.com, and uh, journalist Lynn Harris, who kept her name professionally for her byline, but she legally moved her birth name to her middle name and took her husband's last name kind of in her everyday life. She wrote this. If you think my principles, my convictions, my very identity can be erased in the blink of a Harris, then Lucy Stone really did bust her ass for nothing. End quote. Lucy Stone was the feminist from the 70s who... 1870s, yeah. 1870s? Right, who... So, so she, she went to go... So she went to go vote... Oh, right. 
in Boston's elections and they said, no, you have to add your husband's name. And there's a little more uh, to that story. She had owned property in her own name, this, that, and the other. And there was a question of, could she, I think, could she like buy and sell this property in her own name? And they were um, talking to lawyers and there was actually no law on the books that Mm. she had to do that, but they weren't sure. So she was kind of like using that name kind of half. And then she decided, you know what? Nope, not going to use it. There's no law that says I can't. And then she goes to vote and she's not allowed to vote. So, you know, it's like technically she doesn't have to, Mm -hmm. but then you can't do things that the rest of civil society can do. Yeah. Like vote and then later drive (laughs) this, that, and the other. Natural, you know, be a naturalized citizen. All this... All this kind of civic engagement. Yeah. And we should say probably that none of this episode is to say that it's wrong to take one name or the other because obviously three quarters of this podcast took their male husband's names in one form or another. That's right. Marissa took it entirely. She Mm -hmm. put Chrisman as her middle name. Oh, did she do that too? Yep. Okay. I didn't realize her Chrisman was her middle name too. Okay. It's Marissa C. Rhodes, right? But she... Yeah, she put it's Marissa C. Rhodes because Marissa Chrisman Rhodes. Oh, okay. Um, well, there you go. And so we all three took Elizabeth it in or some Sarah way. hyphenated. Yeah. And her kids have her last name as their one of their middle names. Okay. They all have two middle names. Okay. And you, you took yours as your middle name, mm-hmm. but you use your full name. You like say Elizabeth Garner mm-hmm. Masrick and all of your. So I have shit. three names. Yeah. 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 And I didn't, and I would never. Yeah. I would just never. Sure. Well, I, I guess apparently I'm out of I'm in the ten percent that hasn't. But I mean I'm not married either, so yeah. Well, yeah, I'm like thinking. Mm. <laughs> but if I were to marry, then I would never. Right. He could he could consider taking my name because my name is obviously superior. It is. Pretty it's awesome. like semi royalty earls. earls. The earls of some place in of Ireland. Some place. <laughs> <laughs> it's very royal. Was beady. It sounds fancy. like you like take beatings. Yeah. Great. <laughs> it sounds like some London back alley. Yeah. <laughs> uh, baby. <gasps> yeah. But yeah, no, there's so much to think about on this one. And so I think about like with my kids, my they both have middle names that are from families, right? So right. my daughter has my grandmother's name as her middle name, this and the other. And then I think about my my Mary name, Mazarek, mm-hmm. or Mazarek is, um, it probably should be pronounced, but we pronounce it Mazarek. But, you know, that was changed in immigration. You know, it mm. should be changed. It should be spelled with a Y, but instead it's spelled mm. with an I. Is that Polish or? It's Czech. It's Czech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Tomas Mazarek. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, every family has a has a story like that. Yeah. So, and, you know, but what is a name? What is a name? What is a name? I don't know. And I don't have an answer for you. You know, my name is like is is me, right? Because I don't think I would be who I was if I wasn't Averill Earls. But on the other hand, I mean, you know, I, the the, the, the vowels, argument can but... be brought up. Well, that name is still from your father. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, and I I was thinking about my mom's family name, Carr. It might die because they had eight kids. There are only two male grandchildren with the last name Carr. And I'm not confident that either of them is going to have kids. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the way the Garners of Texas are no more. Mm. Unless you adopt some kids and make them take Garner. Right. Which, do that. 
Okay. Why not? I want more kids. I know let's you do. A, let's have a house full of them. Eventually, yours are going to be, you know, like old and telling you that they hate you and they don't yeah, want to see you. And I then know. you just get to get new have ones. Like a couple more years. <laughs> you got to get the, the grateful ones. Until, until they go through that horrible phase and then they come back to me. Yeah, exactly. And then the little ones are in the horrible phase, so I can just yeah. keep trading off children. Trading off. <laughs> oh Listeners, we've lost you. Yes. So, <laughs> um, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode on naming. I, this has been my favorite episode that you've ever written that I've been Aww, on. Thank Maybe you. that, that ever, um, it was very fun. Like the mixture of the legal stuff with the anthropology is very fun. Okay. Um, it up for you yeah, it was, it was good. So okay. make sure you follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't already join our dig pod squad, share your ridiculous history memes mm-hmm. and funny onion articles. We're there for you in all of your history-related wildness. You know. Wildness. That's a, that explains I mean, it that's, to a team. That is what happens in that group. It gets <laughs> wild. It's wild. You can find the, the transcript and show notes for this episode and the great books that Elizabeth used for this episode at digpodcast.org. <laughs> Bye! I will kill you! Bye! This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. Uh, as one woman commented, bleh, such as pewter cups and textiles, showing or something, and all were made for women, with one exception, um, and the rest have initials. Does that, did I read that weird? Made in Hadley and, and nearby Hampshire County, Hampshire, Hampshire, Hampshire. Hampshire. New Hampshire. Um, okay. Oh, uh, uh, oh, oh, you finished. You finished. Great. I am finished. And that will probably be really hard to edit. Should I read it again? No, I like, I like okay. our conversation. Okay. Because, I mean. Gentle listener. <laughs> we love you. Sorry. <laughs> what are you giving me a weird look for? Am I going too deep in the woods? No, I love it. It's just so weird. <laughs> I busted open some of my anthropology books. <laughs> Um, does that make sense? I'm savage. Okay. I love it. I yeah. love it so much. Morrison. Oh, I just touched your toes with oh my, my toes. God. It was very intimate. Wow. <laughs>